Sometimes you can look straight at something and you can see that it's just evil. So towards the end of the Harry Potter books, Professor Dumbledore is surrounded by a band of evil wizards who want to kill him. And standing right there is Severus Snape, one of the other professors at Hogwarts School of Wizarding and Witchcraft, um, where Dumbledore is the headmaster. And Dumbledore looks right at Severus and he says, Severus, please. But his cry for help goes ignored. Severus Snape pulls out his wand and Avada Kedavra, he, he kills Dumbledore in cold blood. He's a murderer and a traitor. Or so it seems. Because in the last book, we find out that Dumbledore was actually already dying from the effects of an evil curse. And even more than that, we find out that this whole time, Severus Snape has really been helping Dumbledore to defeat the evil wizards, and all because of his deep, undying devotion to Harry Potter's murdered mother, Lily, whom Severus had loved since he was a child. Because when everybody else mocked and tortured and abused Severus Snape, Lily befriended him. You know, Severus Snape was not a villain driven by hatred. He was a hero captivated by love. Sometimes you can look at something and it looks evil on the surface, but when you dig a little deeper, you find a a hidden transformative beauty that you didn't even realize was there. We're in a series on the book of Revelation, and I've been promising you all along that at some point we were going to look at one of the most difficult and offensive ideas in the whole Bible. It's the judgment of God, the wrath of God. This is one of the most offensive and difficult things. Many people, it's one of their main objections to believing in the God of the Bible. I can't believe in a God of wrath and judgment. I could only believe in a God of love and mercy Sometimes when we look at it, it just looks so evil. The the idea of God's judgment that one day God will pour out his wrath on an evil world, it just feels so offensive, so unjust, so evil. But what if there's more to the story than that? Severus, please. What if the deeper you delve into the wrath of God, the more you find a power and a love and a beauty and a grace that's waiting there to bring healing and closure to the deepest hurts and wounds of your lives? What if there's a love far more potent than anything you could have possibly imagined? I want to invite you this morning into a journey into the heart of God, but it's also a journey into our own hearts. And there's going to be some pain there, but in the middle of that pain, there's also um, a love and and a beauty that's available to bring healing to our lives. And I want to invite you into that this morning. Let's look at three things in this passage and learn more about the wrath of God. We are going to see there's a cry for justice, there's an encounter with grace, and lastly, there's an experience of healing. There's a cry for justice, there's an an encounter with grace, but there's also an experience of healing, okay? So first, there's a cry for justice here. Now, Revelation is a vision that shows us God's master plan for bringing perfect justice, healing, and renewal to the world. And here at the beginning of chapter 15, it's judgment day. It says, then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. Now, I don't know about you, but when I hear that word wrath, I have a tendency to think about an uncontrollable outburst. You know, like God just blows his top or something like that. But this word wrath actually is a word that means deep passion. 
It, it describes a deep emotional response to something. That means that the wrath of God is really, it's his longing for justice in this world. And you know what? We long for that too. So if you look at the end of the passage, um, at the very end, it talks about, um, it says, one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God. Now, um, these golden bowls are full of the wrath of God, but this is not the first time that we've encountered these golden bowls in the book of Revelation. Back in chapter 5, there's a vision of God and Jesus on the throne of heaven, and it says the four living creatures and the 24 elders, they fell down before the lamb who was on the throne. Each of them was holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So these golden bowls are, are full of God's wrath, but it's not just God's wrath that they're full of. They're also full of the prayers of God's people. And what are these people praying? We find out in chapter 6. It says, They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true. How long before you will judge and avenge your blood? And that word avenge literally means bring justice. These are people who are crying out for justice. Now, I want to ask you a question. Do you ever cry out for justice? I know it's a stupid question. Of course we do. We all cry out for justice. The cry for justice is one of the deepest, most passionate, most primal instincts in all of human experience. So for instance, a few weeks ago, we were talking about the different cultural narratives we have in our society. In our culture, we have a morality narrative that goes like this. Our morality narrative says everyone must decide for themselves what is right and wrong. Have you ever heard that? Maybe you've said it. You know, who's to say what's right and wrong? And yet, no one would deny, just to use a few recent examples, no one would deny that what happened to George Floyd or Ahmaud Arbery or Breonna Taylor is undeniably wrong. None of us are standing around saying, who's to say? That we cry out for justice. We, in fact, we demand justice. We look at evil and injustice in the world, and we say somebody has to pay for that. Now, here's the question. Why would we expect God to care less about justice than we do? A God who doesn't care about justice, who doesn't do anything about the evil and injustice in the world, a God like that wouldn't be worthy of our worship. The, the wrath of God simply means that this is a God who is passionately committed to setting things right in the world. He's committed to setting things right. Do you long for that? We all long for that. This is a God who does it. You know, it's oftentimes uh, we Western people who are the ones that, that are most offended by the idea of God's wrath in this world. We say things like, you know, if you believe in a God of judgment, that is inevitably going to make you a violent, intolerant person, really. You know, there's a theologian named Miroslav Volf. He wrote a book called Exclusion and Embrace. Miroslav Volf is from Croatia, which means that he has experienced firsthand the genocide and the ethnic cleansing that went on there in the early 1990s. He, um, you know, millions of people there were uh, abused or tortured or raped or displaced or even killed and thrown in mass graves. In his book, Miroslav Volf asks the question, what, what is going to keep people from getting sucked into a never-ending cycle of violence and revenge? 
What's going to keep that from happening? Here's his answer. He says, the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance. Yeah, we heard that right. Let me read that one more time. The practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance. It takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis or the idea that human nonviolence corresponds to God's refusal to judge. In a scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, that idea will invariably die. And as one watches it die, one will do well to reflect about many other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. Now, what's he saying? It's kind of a mouthful, but he's simply saying that one of the main reasons that we Western people object the most to this idea of a God of judgment is because we've lived privileged lives. The the quiet of a suburban home. He's saying that if you've been oppressed and, um, and abused, if your family had been raped and killed, the only thing that would keep you from picking up the sword and getting sucked into that never-ending cycle of violence and revenge would be if there is a God who cares so much about justice that he will do something about it so that you don't have to. Friends, a God who doesn't care about justice isn't worthy of our worship. Our cry for justice doesn't make any sense unless there's a God who's committed to justice. And that leads to our next point. We've just talked about our cry for justice. But secondly, we want to look at there's an encounter for grace here. You know, this passage um, begins and ends with God's justice. They're like bookends. It begins with God's promise to bring judgment into the world, and it ends with these seven angels coming forth to carry out that justice. But right in between those two things, sandwiched right in between God's promise of justice and the actual carrying out of justice, there's something else in between those two things. What is it? This is the key to the whole thing. Here's what it says. He says, And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands, and they sing the song of Moses and the song of Lamb. Now remember, uh, Revelation is filled with hundreds of references to the Old Testament. And to understand Revelation, we have to understand the references. This is a reference to the story of Israel and the Exodus. God rescued Israel out of slavery in Egypt. He brought them through the Red Sea on dry land. But Pharaoh and his army, remember what happened to them? They perished in the sea. And when that happened, the Israelites were standing on the other side of the sea, and they were singing a song of celebration. Here in this passage, the song has been remixed. So it's not just the song of Moses anymore. It's also the song of the Lamb. What are they singing? They say, great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, for you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Now, I want to point out something about this song. There's two things going on in here. First of all, they're praising God. That, that he is just and holy and righteous in everything he does. But secondly, they're experiencing a deep joy that all of the nations of the, of the world uh, would come and worship God. And remember, the nations are um, they're enemies of Israel. So think about this. Right in the middle of this passage that's all about God bringing judgment on evil in this world, right in the middle of this passage, there's a song. 
the song of the Lamb. It's a song that does two things. First, it puts judgment for evil in God's hands, and secondly, it puts hope for enemies in our hearts. That's like if somebody came to your home, tortured and killed your family, and then instead of you picking up a gun and hunting them down, you actually put judgment for that in God's hands and then asked God to save the person who did that. How can they sing a song like that? How could we sing a song like that? Do you even want to sing a song like that? The only way we can sing a song like that is if we're standing where they're standing. What do I mean? The sea is a picture of God's judgment on evil, the waters of judgment. How is it that Israel is able to come safely through the waters of judgment, but Pharaoh and his army perished? Is it because, you know, Israel, they're the good guys, and Egypt, they're the bad guys? No. In fact, the answer is that the, the, the only um, thing that was uh, able to make Israel come through the waters of judgment in safety was because they had something standing in between them and the wrath of God. Because when God brought them out of Egypt, he sent an angel of destruction throughout the land, and he told Israel, I'm sending an angel of destruction, and the only way you'll be safe is if you take a lamb, slaughter its blood, smear it over the doorstep of your, uh, doorpost of your house, and then when the angel of destruction comes through, it'll pass over you in safety. The only difference between Israel and Egypt was that Israel took shelter under the blood of a lamb, under the blood of a substitute. That means that without that, they were just as liable to judgment as Egypt. You know, this is mind-blowing for us because we would look at this story and, and we would be inclined to say, well, Egypt, they're the oppressors, they're the bad guys, they deserve judgment, but Israel, they're the oppressed. They deserve blessing. You know, the story of Exodus, it shatters our categories because it says we're all liable for judgment. And the only way we can escape that is not by the goodness of our own lives, that's traditional religion, but by the grace of God, that's the gospel. That's the only way we can escape. You know, when you really begin to grasp this, you realize that, that as offensive as the wrath of God is in our culture, it's nowhere near as offensive as the grace of God. Because the grace of God means that we all deserve judgment, and yet God has not given us what we deserve in order to give us the grace we don't deserve. Because we all deserve judgment. Do you believe that's true about you? In John Steinbeck's book, East of Eden, he, uh, there's a character named Kathy. And Kathy, the, really the only way to put it is she's a monster. She burns her parents' house down with them in it. And that's just the beginning of what she does. It gets worse from there. At one point in the book, here's what Steinbeck says about Kathy. He says, Kathy was what I have called a monster. But we are capable of many things in all directions of great virtues and great sins. And who in his mind has not probed the black water? Maybe we all have in us a secret pond where evil and ugly things germinate and grow strong. But this culture is fenced, and the swimming brood climbs up only to fall back. Might it not be that in the dark pools of some men, the evil grows strong enough to wriggle over the fence and swim free? Would not such a man be our monster? And are we not related to him in our hidden water? Well, friends, what's in your hidden water? 
The only way we can be offended by the judgment of God is if we think that some people in the world deserve it, but we don't. The grace of God means that that none of us gets what we deserve, that we all deserve judgment, but that God has not given us what we deserve in order to give us the grace we don't deserve. And that leads to our last point. We've seen there's a cry for justice. Secondly, there's an encounter with grace. But lastly, this passage shows us an experience of healing. You know, um, in this passage, uh, there's a far more nuanced view of the human condition than anything our culture offers us. What, what does it mean for grace to come into your life? And, and what, what would that grace actually do to you or for you if it were to come into your life? We have a tendency to look at humanity, at the human condition, and we have a tendency to divide it into the good people and the bad people. The Bible says that's way too reductionistic, that people are more complex than that. That the Bible is really clear that Israel and the Exodus story are a paradigm of the human condition and what God is doing about that human condition. So yes, on one level, Israel and Egypt are both liable to judgment. We all have the same capacity for evil. We're all liable to the wrath of God. And yet, when you think about their experience and their story, you understand that none of that erases the reality that Israel was oppressed. They were victims. They were sinned against. They were victims of brutality and torture and violence, of physical enslavement, of economic oppression, of emotional and psychological abuse. They were victims of tremendous sins. You also have had things that have happened to you in your life, horrible things that have been done to you, unjust things, grievous things, wicked things, sad things. That's a part of your story. You know, what this passage is showing us? What does it mean to stand on the other side of the sea of judgment, on the other side of the waters of judgment? What does it mean to say that God has carried you through to the other side by grace? Well, on the one hand, it would mean that just like Israel, there are sinful things, wicked, unjust things that have happened to you, and you are not responsible for those things. But on the other hand, they have There are all kinds of sinful ways we've responded to those things, and we are responsible for those things. That means that, uh, according to the gospel, both of those things are true about you. Both of those things describe you, but neither of those things define you. Both of those things are true. They're real. They describe you, but neither of those things define you. The challenge for us in our culture is that we live in a culture that is constantly pressing us to define ourselves by our lived body experiences in this world. So our class, race, gender, sexuality, our economic status, social status, our, um, our achievements, our political affiliation, to define ourselves by our lived body experiences in this world and also to define ourselves by our desires, which are always connected to all those things I just mentioned. So in our culture, you define yourself. You have to look deep inside and and find your authentic self, find your true self, that inner child that was crushed by society. And it may very well have been crushed by society. But here's the amazing thing about the gospel. It means that, that what if you could look at, at your experiences and your desires and your hurts and your wounds and your sin and the guilt and the evil in your life? What if you could look at all of that stuff and and it's true about you, it describes you, it's real, but none of it defines you? That would mean that on the one hand, you would be able to get off of God's throne and put judgment for evil in God's hands. 
And that doesn't mean, by the way, that, that we shouldn't stand up against evil and injustice in the world. Of course we should. Um, we talked about um, that last week in our sermon. The whole sermon was about it. So it, it means that on the one hand, um, we get off of God's throne and we would be able to leave ultimate judgment in God's hands. But on the other hand, it would also mean that we would be set free to look at, at all the stuff in our life, our experiences and our desires, our hurts and wounds, our sin and our evil, to be able to look at all of that stuff, to name it, be honest and real about it, and to grieve it without being defined by it, without being enslaved or embittered or controlled or devastated by it. Friends, the gospel is the only thing that can give that to you. How? You know, we've seen that this passage begins and ends with judgment, with the wrath of God. And so as we saw, both at the beginning and the end of the passage, it talks about seven plagues, for with them, the wrath of God is finished. You know, the really amazing thing about that word finished, and it's not a coincidence, is that this is the exact same thing Jesus said on the cross. Right before he died, Jesus cried out, it is finished. You know, we're all liable to the wrath of God. We all have the same capacity for evil. We're all liable to the wrath of God. But on the cross, Jesus absorbed the wrath for us. It is finished. All of our sin and evil and guilt, all of our shame and remorse and, and the condemnation for the things that we've done, it's finished. All of the, the, the horrible things that we've done that keep us up at night or keep us from falling asleep at night, all of the things that we wish there was some way we could make up for them because that cry of justice inside of us knows that they demand payment. Jesus paid for those things with his blood on the cross. It is finished. He absorbed all the wrath. But when Jesus perished in the waters of judgment, when he made a way through for us to stand on the other side of the sea, to be carried through the waters of grace... You know what that does for us? It means that Pharaoh and his army can no longer touch you. That means that all of the things, the horrible, wicked things that have happened to you, they're still real. They're still a part of your story. They're still there, but they don't define you anymore. They don't control you anymore. They have no more power over you. It is finished. Friends, the song of the Lamb, the more you learn to sing the song of the Lamb, the more that sets your heart free, both from the guilt of all the things that you've done, but also the power and the oppression of all the things that have been done to you. That means that you are now able to get off of God's throne and leave ultimate judgment to him, but you're also able to, to get into God's heart and to yearn and to long passionately for the healing, the spiritual renewal and healing of even your bitterest enemies. Are we learning to sing the song of the Lamb? The more we learn to sing that song, the freer we get. Because in that song, all of the wrath is finished. Let's pray. Father, we praise you. O oh Lord God, the Almighty, for just and holy and true are all your ways and your righteous ways have been revealed. Most especially have they been revealed on the cross of Jesus Christ. And we praise that for you this morning, Lord, for absorbing that wrath for us on the cross, Lord Jesus. We pray this morning that you would help us to go deeper beneath that bitter surface, Lord, to get deep into the beauty and the glory and the sweetness of, of the grace that you offer us, the love that you offer us, and the healing that you offer us on the cross of Jesus Christ. Father, that that would transform us and make us people that are able to leave ultimate judgment in your hands 
and to work for healing and renewal in this world because we are set free from guilt, but also from wrath in our own hearts towards the people of this world. Father, make us agents of your grace and your love and your healing to the world. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.